I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. Today on the Executives Exchange, we welcome Richard Edelman, CEO of Edelman. He discusses how a plan to work at the family company for one year turned into 44 tremendous years. We also explore the findings of this year's trust barometer, the important role business needs to play, the shift in trust for the Midwest, and what gives him hope for the future. Hi, Richard. Thanks for being with us today. It's great to be with you. You were born and raised in Chicago. I don't know that everyone knows that, although a lot of people probably do. Um, your father founded Edelman when you were very young. I'd love to hear about what memories you have being around the office when you were a kid. So my dad would uh, take the kids to the office on Saturday and um, we would take our homework. And when we were done, we would bring our hockey sticks and we would play tennis uh, We would play with a tennis ball in the hallways of the merchandise mart. And oh I was always desperately afraid I was going to break a window. I, unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't do it there, but... I used to do that at the Mary Knoll Fathers next to the <laughs> apartment building. <laughs> was that the first office in the Merchandise Mart? Yeah, he started the Merchandise Mart with four people um, because that's where the Tony company was. That's great. When did you first think that you'd want to work there? Really not until um, I was uh, getting out of business school. I assumed that I would work in some big company and, and be in marketing. My dad had an offer to be acquired in 1978 by uh, DDB, Doyle Dane Burnback, and uh, he didn't want to sell. And so uh, I, I had already tentatively accepted an offer from Playtex. And he said, you know, come work for the family company for a year. And here I am in year 44. <laughs> wow. Did any of your siblings start before you or did they come after you? At the they came after me because I'm the eldest. Okay. My sister came after she was a journalist. And then my brother came after he was in uh, the political wars. He worked for Gary Hart and whatever. Oh, really? So, yep. Oh my gosh. That must've been very interesting. Well, you're such a family business at its core, starting out working with your parents, your siblings. Now you're working with your children. I'd love to hear more about how that impacts you both personally and professionally. It's such a special experience. So my father and I were very close. We Talked every day. My uh, sister and brother each at one point ran an office. My brother ran Dallas. My sister was running our second agency, um, then PR21 office New York. So it's complicated in the sense of who's going to succeed the father. And you know, right. I emerged because I built the New York office. And but my siblings, you know, are very happy with the success of the company and they each have their own patch. My my sister does um, the sort of history of Edelman, the Edelman Museum, and uh, my father's papers, and my brother does the Edelman Foundation and also runs all of our sustainability work yeah. um, for the company. And then my three daughters are in the business now, um, one in London, one uh, in New York at our second agency, Zeno, and the eldest is in the New York office as the number two person. That's so special that you get to share this, your full life with them, not yeah, just I part of your life. Right. Look, um, <laughs> Every Thanksgiving dinner, we would quickly migrate over to how's the office and what's going on and which clients are we getting. And that's that's one way to do Thanksgiving. And, and you know, it's ever present. Let's put it this way. And yeah. I grew up having clients come around. You know, I got to meet 
um, Sarah Lee's founder, Charlie Lubin, and Irv Schwartzberg from Relemon, and I got to meet Colonel Sanders, and then John Y. Brown from KFC, and Orville Redenbacher taught me how to make popcorn. So, oh, what's the trick? What did um, he do different? A lot of, you got to put a lot of oil in the bottom, and then you have to put two kernels in, wait for them to pop, and then you put the rest of the corn in. Oh, and I almost never burn popcorn. I'm pretty good at that. And I don't um, like the way of popcorn. I make my own. Yeah. I feel like um, the Cheating. ultimate trick to everything is a lot of oil or a lot of butter. That's unfortunately the secret. <laughs> Before we jump into the trust barometer, I do want to talk a little bit about Edelman's legacy as a company. You began in, I believe, 1952. Do I have that right? right. And right. now such a prominent leading global communications firm. You help a lot of companies evolve, promote, and protect their brands and their reputations. Has the business's goals or mission or values shifted at all in those last 70 years, or is it the same as it was when it started? So I think in any company's history, um, you go through phases. And the first phase for Edelman was to be a marketing PR firm because my dad invented the media tour and he represented consumer brands. And then we went into corporate reputation and public affairs, Concord SST landing rights or the Vietnam Veterans War Memorial in D.C. or the Turkish arms embargo, things like this. Then we went into becoming a communications firm so that uh, we could build a substantial digital business, have our own creative and now the next phase or the present phase is, you know, how do we become a trust transformation firm and put mm. uh, trust at the center of the corporate equation? I don't think our values have shifted. We're still family owned. We put client experience ahead of company profit. We want long-term employees. The ambition has always been to build a global company and the family doesn't take money out of the business. We put it back in. And therefore, you know, between Edelman and Zeno, now it's a $1.25 billion business, which to me is shocking because I started when it was $6 million. That's amazing. It's a, it's a really great story of a family business that can. And we didn't sell out to some big advertising holding company. And therefore, you know, it's sort of on us every day. Yeah. No, that's incredible. Have you read this book, Small Giants, Companies That Choose to Be Great, Not Big? No, I better get it. Oh, it's so good. Many of the stories, it's a bunch of vignettes. So it's really easy to read. Each chapter is just a case study. And it's about companies that chose to either not go public or not sell because they could be a better company if they didn't do it. That's our story for sure. But I don't know. I still think of ourselves as small. I mean, I have an HR head and, you know, I can't get used to when, when I'm interviewing someone, of course, I always get to the ultimate of, okay, what do you make? What do you want to make? And and she's like, you don't have to do that. That's my job. And I said, I don't know. I, you can't change my stripes. I'm sorry. I've been doing this a long time. Yeah. I love being in all the pieces too. That's why I love midsize companies yes. for me personally, because I love to do that all. Okay. Let's jump into the trust barometer because there's so much to talk about and you just recently launched it. Most of our listeners know about it. It's based on your company's belief that trust is the ultimate currency. For the few listeners who may not be familiar, let's just give them a primer. Tell us some more about the vision behind it when you started it and why. Well, we started it after the battle in Seattle in 1999 because we wanted to understand the power of NGOs, non-governmental organizations. And they had stormed the conference and complained about globalization as being unfair, which, of course, you know, given today's set of problems seems like chicken meat. But the 
Trust Barometer initially was in uh, five countries and then uh, has now expanded to 28. We used to do it once a year just for Davos, for the World Economic Forum. And now we do it uh, 10 times a year on, on different subjects, race and diversity, uh, sustainability, health um, healthcare since the pandemic. And it's become the defining piece of intellectual property in the communications industry. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm such a, a data nerd with my market research background. And so I, I dug into the report. There was so much in there uh, that we're going to get into. But before we do that, share with people why it's such a powerful tool for business leaders. What does it give them that they can't get anywhere else? I think that um, a business leader can understand what his or her role is on societal issues, that in fact, there are huge expectations by employees and consumers for business to speak up. And that in fact, belief-driven employees will only work for you if you actually are expressing those views. That they, they, that the trust has actually gone from being top-down in the classic sense of, of Moses or Jesus, you know, to the people, to something that's conveyed locally. In my company, my CEO, my company newsletter, supplemented by peer-to-peer, um, so that a coworker today has equal validity to a technical expert about the pandemic or, or other issues. Right. And that's a function of disbelief in information and the consequence of change in perception of both media and government. So for those who have maybe not checked out the report yet, here's the headline. Business is the only trusted institution yet again in this year's report, and both government and media suffer from a lack of trust. Maybe not surprising for some people. How did we as a society get here? If you look at the math on competence and ethical behavior, business, again, is the only one in the top right corner which gets positive scores. NGOs are ethical but not competent. Government and media are neither competent nor ethical. <laughs> business is 50 points higher on competence than government and 30 points higher on ethics. I mean, it's so striking. So I think actually, Margaret, it's a series of dominoes. It's the pandemic. It's the murder of George Floyd. It's the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Think about this. Which institution performed best during the pandemic? Business, because invented the vaccine, kept people working with PPE, made sure that we actually had food to eat. Then George Floyd gets murdered. Business takes this on. And in Edelman's case, 32% of our workforce is now diverse. We took this on as a serious challenge. It was a goal before. Now it's become business strategy. On the matter of Russia, a thousand companies have gotten out of Russia. A thousand. Only 200 companies got out of South Africa in the years of apartheid with all the boycotts and protests. So one year, 1,000. 20 years, 200. Huge change in corporate behavior. So that's why business has such a higher ranking. Were we ramping up to this point and then these were the catalytic events or was business not really going to step into this and they were forced into the fray because of COVID and George Floyd? I use the analogy with you of a table with four legs and that's what the four institutions are, business, government, NGOs, and media. And you have two legs that are short at the moment, which is media and government. And therefore plates are sliding off the table. And the reality is people just want solutions. They want things done. 
They don't want arguments. They just want action. And action builds trust. And business is the institution that can act and is expected to act. So if you can, you must. I'm wondering, particularly in the U.S., we're so unique in how dependent employees are on employers for our health care, our retirement. I mean, things that in many other countries are given to you by the government. Are you seeing big differences in this in the U.S. versus the rest of the world related to that? It's an acute observation. The reality is that in almost every democracy, business is more trusted than government. Government is more trusted than business only in single-party states or in developing democracies with strong leaders, such as India. Reality of trust, trust is deeply related to the perception of economic performance and expectations of future economic performance. And so if I'm optimistic about my country and my family being better off in five years, then I have high trust levels. If I'm not, then I have low trust levels. So Japan, France, at the very bottom, 10% of people have that level of optimism. Pathetic. The U.S. is 35%. Huge delta between Republicans and Democrats. 50-plus percent of Democrats think they'll be better off in five years. 25% of Republicans. And Republicans only trust government and media by 20, at 25%. And under a majority, under 50% of Republicans trust business. More people who are Democrats trust business than, than Republicans. I mean, that is anathema to what we believe these parties allegedly stand for, right? Well, Republicans would say that business is too activist, that business is too woke or whatever. And my argument is, I don't think business asked for this job, but business has this job. <laughs> and business needs to be very involved and lead on sustainability, race and diversity, wage levels and reskilling, and in some areas on geopolitics. But on gun control, abortion, uh, voting rights, I, I think you can talk to your own staff, but I don't know that you have to be a big public advocate, unless you're Dick Sporting Goods or Walmart, where you've had guns in the stores or something else and you want to change policy. I think that's so interesting, the fact that business didn't ask for this job, but this is the job they have. And it's really also showing up in the leadership traits that we require of our CEOs and other leaders. We just had our Talent Outlook program this week, and it was a panel of a bunch of CHROs talking at length about these new leadership traits, things like empathy, vulnerability. I mean, things that 10 years ago we would not have associated with powerful CEOs. Are you seeing a change in who's raising their hand to take the job because it's so different now and it's much more difficult than just managing profit. In my career, I've seen a change from Jack Welch to Howard Schultz. <laughs> One who's just, you know, we got to fire the bottom 10% every year versus Schultz, who has the highest level of, of empathy and spends his life going to stores listening to his associates. Be sure that they have health care and education and all the things that, as you said, traditionally government did, but they don't do now. The essence of the new leader is to be, in a way, an inside-out leader and to be as Gen Z as, as that cohort. Right. <laughs> to be attuned to those issues in the same way as a Gen Z. And that's the kind of like, what got you here won't get you there. I mean, that's not normally the training path to CEO, right? These kinds of traits. And so it's going to be so interesting, I think, because it used to be the pathway was basically the COO or the CFO now 
went, goes into the CEO spot. And there are other pathways now. We're seeing more CMOs move into CEO roles because they have such a deep understanding of customers and people's needs. In tech companies, it's more, you know, the chief tech officer or the product officer is moving into CEO because they understand the product more than anyone versus it used to be this pathway of just the person who understands the operations and the finance will take the CEO seat one day. But you look at a Satya Nadella, this guy, self-made from India, he's deeply tied to his people. He's a total, you know, programming genius. He has a really strong connection to the Microsoft gang. What does he do so well? Leadership by walking around. That's what he does. He travels. He sits and listens. He has dinners. Listen, I, I try to emulate that in as much as you can be with your people. That's leading. So is business vulnerable now? How do they maintain this going forward? And where do you see the biggest risks for them dropping in trust? I don't know that business can sustain this level of expectation as a solo act. And that's why I recommended starting in Davos that business stop doing the Heisman to government. And you see the risks with the crypto folks and how they blew up an industry without government supervision. And now, you know, some are going to go to jail on privacy and security, or even on geopolitics, business better be in sync with government because it's going to need the protection. You know, business isn't elected. Business is appointed for a term. I do want to give a shout out to Edelman and your brother, John, for leading on this ESG summit that we're doing. We're doing our first one in a few weeks. It is sold out. There's been nothing like this in the Chicago market, and it's Edelman and Northern Trust and PwC, and it's going to be really fantastic. So thank you, Edelman, and thank you to your brother, John, for leading Well, us. you know that more than 85% of investors today review ESG as part of their whether they buy the stock. I, I would say also employees decide every month whether or not they want to stay with you, the company based on whether or not they're pursuing an ESG agenda. It's a deeply important uh, guardrail. So let's get into some more specifics of the trust barometer and the 2023 report. It showed that we live in a very polarized world. You touched on some of these and the biggest distinctions between Democrats and Republicans. We all can feel it. There are four forces of polarization that you highlight. And so I'd like to talk about each for our listeners. Number one, economic anxieties. What's going on? Well, I think first the pandemic, then second, inflation. What we have in terms of fears is we used to have kind of institutional fears like, oh, technology is going to take my job over a period of 10 years. I'm in retail or I'm in banking. Now we have personal fears, nuclear war, if you're sitting in Europe. I can't pay the heat bill. I can't pay my food bill. These are deeply personal. And so we've added to the load of fears, the sort of level of economic concern relative to the economic performance is really quite amazing. People feel much more depressed about the future prospect, even given the three and a half percent unemployment rate and rising wages. People are nervous. That's why you have that. That's a, that's a trust drag. And you have this data that now more people do not believe that they and their family will be better off five years from now. And especially in the U.S., this is so dramatic because it used to be every generation overall in general was in a better situation than their parents. That was part of the dream, right? That you're going to keep, each generation is going to do better. And now that's gone. I mean, I was listening to uh, Billy Joel's song, uh, Allentown. I don't know if you remember that oh, song. Oh yeah, of course. Every kid expected to be able to go to the Jersey Shore. Every kid, you know, 
yeah. knew that he would make more or, you know, like this, even if you worked in the mill and now the mills are closed and the, the jobs are outsourced and, and we're sitting waiting in Allentown. It's just a point of, of it started in the 80s with deindustrialization de and, and jobs moving overseas. And now the sense of, gee, the guys with high educations got bailed out in the Great Recession and did really well because of government money. And, and look how well the people who could sit at home did during the pandemic. And, you know, we're a frontline worker and we're in the bottom tile and I can't feed my family and I've run my credit cards up and my, my, my government support's done. The bottom quartile is not happy, which gets to the point of the mass class divide, Margaret, because what we see is that as a, as a second force, the more delta there is between the top quartile and the bottom quartile, the more trust deficits you have. In the U.S., it's nearly 25 points. It's a record level delta on trust in institutions. It's also 20 points in China, up from four two years ago, totally a function of, of inflation and pandemic. It's almost 20 points in Germany. Anyway, all these countries that used to be happy are now quite uh, polarized by income. Do you see that exacerbating? Do you see that delta just getting bigger and bigger? Or what are the forces that could close it? The things that will close that gap will be labor shortages and rising wages for the blue collar and arguably also a declining stock market so that the wealthy people, you know, who, you know, only 50 percent of people own stocks or something like this, if their if their wealth is 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 declining, the gap has become very large and evident. Yeah. And it makes people angry because they don't think that if a society feels it has a sense of fairness and if there's a sense of opportunity and a sense of equality of chance, then fine. But but I don't think people expect the same outcomes. They just expect the same opportunities. Yep, absolutely. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So we have economic anxieties, mass class divide. Number three, institutional imbalances. Tell us about that. Again, if you have a big difference between trust levels. For instance, in South Africa, Mexico, you have 50 points gap between business and government. You have deeply low trust in government. You also have business, the expectation of business very high because the government is seen as divided and unable. So there's a very over-reliance on, on, on business. In fact, business is even the place where people come to to, to debate issues because it's a safe place and people are more respectful at the office than they are across the fence at, in, in their neighborhood. Why is that? By two to one, I debate more at the office with my colleagues than I do in my neighborhood now. Even if you live next to people, in theory, who you thought were the same kind of economic background, you've gotten to a place where we can't have constructive debate. Two-thirds of people told us, I can't have a good discussion of issues anymore. The society's gotten too hyperbolic. But at work, we're all forced to have at least some semblance of decorum. There you are. We can have a conversation. That's right. 
And so we have transferred our debates to work, which is an amazing phenomenon because we never used to talk about this stuff or you'd talk about the TV show or you'd talk yeah. about the game or some other or how your kids. But now, you know, whether it's abortion and Roe Ro v. Wade or, or, or any of this, it's at the workplace. Well, as workplaces are getting more diverse too, it is the only place where we go where we interact with people who are unlike us, right? So we have all different backgrounds, demographics, and then we leave and we go to neighborhoods that are still very segregated. Our social media feeds are very segregated, our families, I mean, all of these things. And so it's only at work where we do have a chance to be exposed in this environment. And so I think the workplace has tremendous potential for transformational change. But again, this kid keeps putting so much on business. I mean, this just seems like a disproportionate responsibility for the business community. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the last one, the battle for truth. The economics of the media industry are really tough. We're going to be talking to a Chicago-based audience. That the numbers in the Chicago Tribune newsroom are down by two-thirds in terms of reporters. And so the battle for truth is happening more often on social. And people have gone to their own thought bubbles. They... Right watch Fox or MSNBC, they, you know, are increasingly convinced of their own truth and only read or hear people who agree with them. And the news is seen as chasing clicks, becoming politicized. Media and government are a bit in a death grip because media actually follows the ones who tweet most often and are most aggressive. I mean, Trump and, said this when he was in office to the media. Yes. Like, you need That's right. That, that, and, and you'll note that CNN, by moving to the middle, has lost a third of its audience. The issue for media is quite real, but the issue for society is even more profound, which is where are we going to get good facts? And this right. is where I think business, government, NGOs all have to contribute because media can't do it alone. Too few people are reading the media, and therefore the other three institutions have to put good quality information into the social bloodstream and do it frequently on areas where they have comparative advantage. What media does give us good facts? Who are people trusting in the media? I think Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg. I think Meta, Facebook has done a lot to improve its moderation. Search is the highest trusted source of news in, in, in many countries. Because it's seen as apolitical. It's seen as, you know, machine-led as opposed to otherwise. And then there are others that suffer on trust. Yeah. When I was at your event last week, you had this amazing quote about your company's newsletter. So isn't it amazing, Margaret, that our company newsletter is the most trusted source of information about the pandemic or policing or education because it's seen as apolitical? And again, this is a result of the pandemic because people saw in the media two different Stories, fundamentally different stories. But I can trust my company to just give it to me straight. They're not going to politicize it. Yes, that's the theory. And that's why I'm on companies all the time. If they are in their newsletter going to express opinion, you got to do both sides. You, you can't just go this way. Give people facts. That's, that's theoretically, you know, objective. But if it's schools are good, the schools are bad, let's have two views. And then tell us a little bit about the Midwest. I was really surprised by these data. Were you surprised? So the Midwest is the least trusting region in the country. It has the highest expectations of its institutions 
to deliver on societal issues and yet feels deeply that the institutions have not delivered. And this is true of business as well, by the way. The trust gap in the Midwest between want and delivery is by far the biggest. And the trust in institutions across every one of the four institutions is lowest in the Midwest because the Midwest has been the region most sideways economically. There's been some population loss, some job loss. Listen, I think we were the most trusting growing up. Right. The most trusting region because we were doing well economically, because we bought into the American dream, because there were well-paid jobs at Ford or GM, et cetera. And it was the American success story post-war. And now the South has more population. The jobs have migrated either west or south um, or even east. I mean, the Northeast used to be the least trusting region and now it has become second, um, second highest out of the four. I know it was just so surprising to me because I too was raised in the Midwest and you had this idea of like these, you know, Midwestern, everyone's so nice. I remember I had a friend move here from New York and he said, Chicago is not a city. It's just a bunch of Midwesterners living in one place. You're all too nice. (laughs) Yeah. He had too much New York experience. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about paths forward because I want people to have some optimism and hope about where we go from here. You talk about four paths forward. Let's get into it. So I think business needs to continue to lead on the four areas. You will want to know CEOs who who are good models. I think Howard Schultz has been at at, at Starbucks, um, Dan Schulman at uh, PayPal, Oscar Minos, and now Scott Kirby at United have done a really good job of recognizing they have to pay their people better and then they can charge the customers more because it's a better experience. But I I absolutely feel like business can't retreat in the face of this ESG pressure from governors. Yeah. Do that. What's the second path? I think collaborating with government. And a good model on that is Discover Card putting jobs on the south side as insourcing instead of outsourcing as call centers. I think the J.P. Morgan money for cities such as Detroit and Philadelphia, also very smart. I'm working with city government in both cases. The community colleges in Chicago where they've been adopted by companies so that kids can go for fast food or kids can go for tech. And then hopefully the idea of a unified response on privacy and security in tech um, yeah. for platforms. A lot of the things you mentioned are local government. So do you see That's that right. or the solution being, is there, it's, it's not federal, it's going to be brought more closer to home? I think there's no question it's easier to work with mayors and they, they have faster twitch muscles mm-hmm. and, 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 and arguably a less politicized uh, context. Right. What's next? Well, I think we have to get back to economic optimism and I think part of that is to make sure that small business flourishes. Small business since 2008 has lost market share in terms of total jobs. A lot of startups never get to critical mass. Yeah. And we need to help them do that, put them into supply chain. Also, fairness. 
We've got to make sure the bottom 25% of people get reskilled, get good educations, and feel as if they can progress in companies. Yeah. And, and that they're, they're absolutely a priority and not left behind because otherwise they're going to be really alienated when automation comes into companies, which we're already seeing in, in insurance or banking, closing you know, branch offices and things. Everyone needs to realize that a healthy, educated workforce is good for everyone. It's not, I mean, right now there's a sense of, you talked about this unfairness. Oh, well, we're giving all these disproportionate opportunities to these other people and not me and not this understanding of it's good for us all if we are all healthy and educated. It's such a benefit to the entire society. It's tough to get that across, especially to those who feel like their jobs have also been impacted. True. So the last one is to be an advocate for the truth. And here, brands can play a very important role by putting their advertising with platforms that have proper moderation of content, that insist on a standard of behavior. Also, to take on the responsibility of communicating directly with your employees through your newsletter, making sure that people have facts and that they don't have to be agreed facts, but they have to be facts. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is... Innovation, chat, GBT is an instance. Is an instance. It's imperfect. It's a first version. It might ask the New York Times reporter out for a date or I don't know, whatever. But, <laughs> it, you know, the, the, the truth is it's, it's, it's the Model T. So that's, that's a really interesting one. I'm also fascinated by the possibility of the mRNA technology for, for vaccine yep. and... I I met the CEO of a pharma company who said, you know, vaccination can actually, at proper ages, if, 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 for instance, you take uh, vaccination for Gardasil, um, get rid of papillomavirus, you can seriously reduce the number of cancers. So I love that theory of vaccination limiting disease like this. Are you ever surprised by your trust barometer or have you been doing this for so long that you can pretty much predict what it's going to say? Were you surprised about anything this year? I was very surprised by how trust went local in about 2020, that people rejected not only top-down, but peer-to-peer. And, that, and, and, and I've also been surprised by the extent of reliance on, on business, and in particular on CEOs, to speak up, because historically it hasn't been the job. I've been surprised by the fade of trust in NGOs, which I thought, given human rights sustainability, guns, would have had a flourishing period. Do you have any predictions for next year's trust barometer? I think that trust in developed democracies will increase because the economy will be better maybe than we thought. I think sustainability hopefully starts to have a recovery. There's business is the least trusted institution about sustainability. Oh, and really? I'm hoping that COP28 that COP becomes the pivot point for business so that they're seen as not just all hat, but they actually have some cattle (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, that they're, that they're able to do both. I also hope that there's a return to belief in expertise that, 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 that the sort of rebellion against clinicians diminishes because we get a little further away from the pandemic because expertise is necessary for a fact-based society. Right. 
Who was the author of that famous quote, you are entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts? Daniel Patrick Moynihan, senator from New York, professor at Harvard, who um, when I went to audit a class of his the first week of his return to Harvard in 1976, he said, gentlemen, shut the door. No one walks out on Daniel Patrick Moynihan because, the history, because at Harvard you could you know, see the part of the class and then go if you didn't want to take the class. Not his class, man. And <laughs> I decided I wasn't going to take that class. Oh, really? <laughs> that first line, no way. That was so scary. That's really funny. That's a great story. That's true. That's true. So something we really like to do with our guests is some rapid fire questions. Yep. Are you up for it? Yep. Okay. Don't overthink it. We're just going to go really quick. First thing you do in the morning. I work out. Favorite city. Chicago. Sweet or salty? Sweet. Early bird or night owl? Total early bird. How early? 6 a.m. That's that's humane. I could get behind that. I can't get behind this 4 a.m. stuff. That's too much. No. Is there a book you most recommend? I'm just finishing the biography of Samuel Adams by a professor, Stacy Schiff, and as sort of the first patriot, amazing story. Okay. I'm going to put it on my list. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Favorite emoji? The, the curly-haired one of a um, diverse uh, girl that we did for Dove. Oh, you created one? Yeah. Oh, that's great. With lots of curls. Yeah, yeah. That's really great. If you could say one thing to your younger self, what would you say? Don't work so hard. (laughs) Yeah. Laugh more. And my last question, what is one thing that you know for certain is absolutely true? Love wins. Love wins. That's great. Thank you for being here, Richard. Thank you for everything you do for the city of Chicago, especially, but you know all of your clients in the world and for sharing your journey and the trust barometer with us today. Really grateful. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you, Margaret, for having me. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.